Have you ever had a dream that was so vivid and powerful that you were actually relieved when you woke up safe in your bed? Many of us have had dreams that were action-packed, scary, and triggered fight or flight responses. When we woke up, sometimes in a startle, we took a few short breaths, and as we calmed down, we were glad to notice that we were okay. John is having a fantastic vision, but he is not sleeping. Jesus is revealing something to him that can also trigger a response. But for John, that response is relief. He is relieved by this vision because it is a reassurance of who Christ is and what he has done. In this episode of Groundwork, we will look at the parts of this vision and hopefully we can be comforted by the fact that no matter what happens, we worship a God who has it all under control. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Daryl Delaney. And Scott, we are in part four of our six-part series on the book of Revelation. And we've been having a good time explaining all the things that have happened. Um, We gave some background in the first episode, and we talked about John the person. We had Jeff Weimer come Mm -hmm. in, a professor at Calvin Seminary, to talk about the seven church letters. And then in the uh, third episode, uh, we talked about the beginning of John's visions and and the songs he heard uh, in chapters four and five, uh, the first song, uh, an ode to creation, you are worthy for you created all things. And then the second song, the famous worthy is the lamb for you redeemed all things. That was the previous episode. Now in this fourth episode, we're going to move into the middle part of the book and we're going to have to skip a lot. There's a lot in this book uh, and we're only in a six part series, but we're going to go first to Revelation chapter seven. And this is what John sees there. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So that is quite the vision. And I'm sure for many of us uh, listening to this program, uh, those words of Revelation 7 bring to mind uh, a great classic hymn, By the Sea of Crystal. We often sing it at funerals, but at other times too, because the, the lyrics of the three stanzas of By the Sea of Crystal come right out of Revelation 7 here. So there is a lot going on here, Daryl. It's not a very long passage, but there is a lot to take in here. 
Yes, Scott, it is. And and I wanted to start first with the multitude of people that no one can count. We talked about in the earlier episode, episode three, I think it was, where this image of the slain lamb is mm. on the throne. We got the 24 elders around. We got the angels with the eyes all over and the wings crying, holy, holy, holy. And then we have these great multitudes. So the number keeps expanding mm. of everyone who is worshiping around the lamb, who is Christ. And so it's a beautiful thing to see. See that picture. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. So this is a symbol of what needs to happen in all creation. We're all created to glorify and honor him. And we see that uh, John is very explicit. The people who are ultimately going to be in God's new creation are from every tribe, language, people, nation. He piles up every word he can find in the Greek language to refer to a diversity of people. So there's great ethnic diversity, racial diversity. Everybody that God made in his own image, and that is all people, are going to be there. And we'd, we'd said uh, in uh, before, uh, and we're going to note it uh, particularly again in the next episode, uh, in episode five, when we go to Revelation 21, we're going to see that John will see the glory of the nations being brought in. The good things of this world aren't going to be scrapped. And so all the ethnicities with all their distinctive and wonderful characteristics, they're all going to be part of God's new people. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Scott, because I'm thinking about the different beautiful things that cultures bring with like baklava and collard greens and pulled pork and jerk chicken and jambalaya and empanadas and fried rice and sushi and creole and fufu, pad thai. There's so many different foods and that's just foods. We're talking about clothing. We're talking about customs. We're talking about languages and dialects and all of them going to be around the throne worshiping God. It's a beautiful thing to think about how God is going to bring that stuff and he's hitting the refresh button on some of the things that have been created by our hand that he's given us opportunities to do. Exactly. And another interesting thing here is the, the robes that John sees them. They're white robes, and yet the angel showing John this vision says that they're white robes because they were washed in the blood. It's like, well, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> things that get washed in blood don't come out white. They come out red and crimson. These white robes come out of something that shouldn't turn them white, but they do because they are forgiven. They are renewed. And that is the redemption of language that John is going for. Now, just imagine John is on this island. He's been exiled there because of his faith in Jesus. And they think he's guilty of whatever crime it is when he, he's persecuted for his faith. So that's a crime against Caesar. So they consider him guilty as far as Roman government goes. Right. They put him on this island, but he is justified. He is righteous and he's been washed in the blood that you just mentioned. And he has hope in Christ because he knows that Christ will acquit him in the days that come after this. Exactly. John, too, will have his robe washed in the blood, and it'll be shining white when it comes out. And as you just said, Darrell, what a great comfort this is. And we've noted elsewhere in this series the irony that Rome and the Roman authorities, maybe the emperor Domitian, this might have been during the time of Domitian who persecuted yep. the church terribly in the first century. You know, they, they, they threw John on the island because they were sick of this Jesus stuff and they wanted to, you know, kind of remove John, you know, from Jesus. And yet the irony of the island of Patmos for John is that uh, he finds Jesus there. And in a way, he's never really seen Jesus. I mean, if this is John the disciple, he had spent time with Jesus on earth. But uh, seeing the lamb on the throne and seeing the 
these visions indeed had to be just so heartening for him. Rome didn't get the last word here. Jesus and the Lamb on the throne does. So he sees these saints, they're carrying palm branches, kind of reminds you of Palm Sunday yep. maybe, right? Palms of victory in their hands. So John just had to be so, so very encouraged. I would be encouraged, too, because I can see him actually crying while he's writing this and he's writing where he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And I think that's something that we need to hold on to when times get hard in our own Mm -hmm. lives. But when we continue, we're going to talk more about what's happening in the book of Revelation. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Ozey. I'm Daryl Delaney. And we're going to dig right back into the book of Revelation, and we're going to jump ahead a few chapters. We were just in Revelation 7 in the first segment of this program, but now we're going to jump ahead to to chapter 12. And here, Daryl, we have a vivid story of a woman giving birth. This is a very, very interesting take on something that's very, very familiar, and we'll talk a little bit more about that after we hear it. But let's just hear these words from uh, Revelation 12. Uh, It goes like this, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour the child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And there's a lot going on in the passage, like you said, Scott, but I just wanted to allude to the fact that John knows his Bible. Hmm. And he usually puts something in that alludes to or echoes back to something either he wrote or that's in the Old Testament or in the scriptures. And I call them Easter eggs because you got to find when you look in, you find them. And it's a beautiful thing when you find them. So this passage about the woman who's giving birth and the dragon who's trying to devour echoes back to even Genesis, Genesis 3 actually, where the word says, I will put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, the serpent being Satan, the mm-hmm. woman being Eve. 
And it's actually, this is has messianic uh, proportions to it. Exactly. In fact, I remember years ago uh, in his uh, regular column in Christianity Today, Philip Yancey, around the December issue of Christianity Today, he said, this is the Christmas story you don't read in Luke 2. <laughs> this is what the birth of Jesus looked like from the heavens perspective, that Mary gave birth to a child who will rule the nation with an iron scepter, John uh, refers to here. So this is the Christmas story that you don't sing in a Christmas carol. This is what it looked like from God's perspective. The devil was there to try to devour the Son of God made flesh born in that manger in Bethlehem. And that scene was, you know, silent night, holy night, you know, all of our twinkly stars above and the cattle are lowing. This is a very, very scary Christmas story because it reminds us of what the stakes were when Jesus was born. This is actually the passage of the nativity that you don't see. And then the part where Lucifer or Satan is swept the third of the stars out of the sky mm-hmm. and how they're hurled down. That actually is something that Jesus alludes to in Luke 10, where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And also when in Genesis, when their spirit is hovering over the waters right before creation, I'm assuming in that chaos and in that brokenness, that's where Satan has been hurled down to. But you don't have to look that far back to see the brokenness, because when you see war, when you see famine, when you see poverty, when you see racism, that sin there, the enemy is behind that. And that's in our world each and every day. Exactly. And also the third of the stars that he sweeps down uh, and also hurls to the earth. Uh, We think, um, again, this is apocalyptic literature. It's very hard to interpret correctly, but a lot of scholars have thought for a long time that that represents the fallen angels. Maybe some of the angels created by God, these are creatures of God, but who fell, who rebelled along with Lucifer, perhaps long ago, we don't know when, but there's the devil and then there are lots of demons and those third of the stars that were hurled to the earth that the dragon's tail swept them there may represent those spiritual powers. So that's exactly a reminder of what Jesus said, as you said in Luke 10, but also Paul's frequent uh, and other New Testament writers' frequent allusions to that our battle is not against flesh and blood, against the powers and the spiritual powers and principalities uh, and so forth. Uh, So that's all about uh, what's going on here. So in these next verses that come after this, you see how God deals with Satan and the effects of sin going on. So picking up in verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed from its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So 
bad news. The the dragon didn't get the male child, we believe is Jesus. He didn't get Mary, but he's after us. So, yeah, because he's a sore loser and he knows his time is near, he is going to turn his attention to us. He tried to destroy Jesus. And if you think of scripture, you could think of the crucifixion and death being a spiritual way that Satan tries to destroy Jesus, but then the resurrection happens. So he lost that battle. Now he's turning his attention to every single believer on earth. Wonder why you're having hard times. Wonder why you're having persecutions. I'm not going to blame every single thing on the devil, but I am going to say that there is a spiritual opposition to those who follow Christ because Christ promised that we will have trouble in this world. Exactly. And you mentioned the resurrection, which is a a great parallel here, um, Daryl. So we just saw in Revelation 12, the passage where, you know, the, the dragon is there, mouth wide open, ready to devour the child as soon as the woman gives birth. And he snaps shut his jaws and just gets air. The child has been whisked away safely. So, you know, tries that. And then there's a theory, one of the theories of the atonement is that in the death of Jesus, maybe the devil thought he had another chance. As death's it, right? Death is his biggest tool. So once again, at the cross, he snapped his jaws at Jesus. But then on the resurrection, he came up empty again. He got away again. And that was the decisive move. So the devil couldn't stop him from being born, and he couldn't keep him dead. Uh, Jesus has ruled, and Jesus has won the victory. Well, coming up in just a moment, we're going to look at another one of John's visions. And as we wrap up the episode, we'll see what this all means for our lives. So stay tuned. What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork. And Scott, this has been an episode with great, fantastic visions in it. And uh, we've been doing our best to try to explain a little bit of what's happening figuratively. And if we really unpacked every single thing in this book, we couldn't do it in six episodes. We really couldn't. Um, And that's why we've been encouraging people to read the whole book in its entirety to get the full context of what John's trying to communicate. Right. We were just in Revelation 12, and suffice it to say that for most of the chapters after that, until the last two chapters of 21 and 22, which will be the last two programs in this series, we get depiction after depiction of basically a history-long war between God and evil. And evil is sometimes the dragon, but it it, it will also be uh, referred to as Babylon. And Babylon will be uh, referred to often as, as a whore, a prostitute. But it's God versus Babylon, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, and that occupies a lot of this book. In Revelation 13, which we're not going to look at specifically, Revelation 13 ends with one of the more famous parts of this book when we're told about the mark of the beast, and we're given that famous number 666, which for fallen people is sort of like tattooed to their forehead as a sign that they're part of not God's kingdom, but the dragon's kingdom, Babylon's kingdom. So that's in chapter 13, and then we can move on to chapter 14. So let's pick up right here in the beginning of the chapter. It says, then I looked 
And there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of the harpist playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and to lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. So we just at the end of chapter 13, there's that uh, symbolic number for evil, 666. One short of the perfect number of seven in the Bible, right? right? And now here we see those who aren't part of that have a different thing tattooed to their foreheads. It's the name of the Lamb and of his Father. Again, this is symbolic. We don't anticipate actual tattoos, though there has been so much speculation in history about this. But then we also have this number of 144,000. Clearly, all the other visions— in Revelation tell us we aren't supposed to take that number literally. I mean, John has seen multitudes beyond numbering of those from every tribe and nation and tongue, right? So the 144,000 is a number of perfection. It's like 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 people. per. It's just a symbolic number. There aren't going to be only 144,000 people in heaven. (laughs) And there have been some religions that have taken off on that and said, oh, apparently... The door really is narrow. There's only 144,000. You better work hard to get in there. Now, we take that symbolically as a round number of perfection to stand for everybody who worships the Lamb of God and who will be in the new kingdom. And it's kind of an echo again because Jesus says, I have not lost anyone except the one doomed right. to fulfill Scripture. And so— no one who God determines to be saved will be lost. He is batting a thousand when it comes to that. I think the more important thing to focus on is the fact that all of these people are making a public profession of faith. They're singing a new song. I like the verse that says they're singing a song that no one else can sing except the ones who have been hmm. redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And I've heard of old choir songs that said that. I have a song that angels can't sing. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Um, and it's really powerful to see that After the war and all the fallen angels and such, they overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And that is going to be very powerful for them. Exactly. It is a a song of great triumph. Uh, And it's all focused on the lamb because indeed it is all by grace alone. This whole book is the climax of the whole Bible and of the whole New Testament. And what we see here are people redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They have those white robes, which we said earlier, uh, ironically, were washed in the blood and yet they came out white. They've endured. And again, as we've said earlier in this episode and throughout this series, Daryl, John is on a lonely island. He's by himself. He was exiled, but he's not by himself. Uh, God and the Spirit of God is with him. Jesus uh, is with him. And so he is comforted to know that he will be among that number, even uh, though his life has been disrupted and even though he may yet lose his life for his faith, as most of the other apostles did and so many others in the early church. Nevertheless, on the other side of that Worldly loss is great, great victory. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's Paul writing from Philippians chapter 1. 
And in this passage, it's important for us to know the context around it that says John is on this island, not because he's a criminal, according to even according to Roman standards, he is a criminal because he broke the law that says Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. But he is there because of his faith. He is there because he follows Christ, because he refuses to be ashamed of the gospel, because he shares his faith unapologetically. That's why he's there. And um, in the famous words of uh, dearly departed Congressman John Lewis, he got himself in some good trouble. Good trouble is what happens when you stand up for righteousness. Good trouble is what happens when you stand up for truth. When you do justice, love mercy and walk humbly, you will endure that because Christ said that the ones who follow him will be hated by the world. And that's what's happening. Exactly. And as Jesus made clear in the Sermon on the Mount long ago in Matthew's gospel, those who bear the Beatitudes live upside down lives. You know, the people who are truly blessed are the ones the world thinks are truly losers. (laughs) You know, they think that they're out of step. But Jesus basically said, the more out of step you are with the world, which in Revelation and in these middle chapters of Revelation is symbolized as Babylon, if you're out of step with them, good, <laughs> because then you will be among those who, who have had your, your robes, your soul, your whole life washed in the blood of the Lamb. You'll be part of that symbolic number of perfection, that 144,000 who will worship the Lamb forever and ever. John was encouraged. We can be encouraged too. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We hope you'll join us again next time as we study and discuss the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21. Connect with us now at GroundworkOnline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or to tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more information and to find resources to engage and encourage your faith. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Daryl Delaney. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs.